Ari Aster's latest film, Bo is Afraid, opened to mixed reviews and a weak box office, but is it secretly his best movie? Hello, movie friends. Welcome back to Raiders of the Lost Podcast, the ultimate film and TV podcast. We are going to try our best to dissect and analyze Ari Aster's fever dream of an absolute daytime nightmare in Bo is Afraid, his third feature. No, not third feature. I'm sorry. Fourth feature well, as a director. Third studio Studio film. feature, yeah. Because the other one, the something, the Jeffersons, that was yeah, super yeah, low budget. Yeah, I can't remember what it was called. So this technically, it's his fourth feature-length film, but I was absolutely blown away by Bo's Afraid. The three-hour runtime, I think, flew by. I don't know about you, but I just feel like it was two hours because I was so enthralled by what I was seeing. I found the film to be hysterical, chaotic, absolutely bonkers in the best ways possible, unpredictable more than anything, and just honestly wholly original, which is what I'm always looking for, as well as challenging to the audience. And I feel like um, we're at a time where many moviegoers are maybe are straying away from being challenged at the movie theater. Like there, this is a film where it's clearly going to challenge you, and most people have strayed away from it. Everybody knows Ari Aster, everybody knows Joaquin Phoenix, but this film film is doing very poorly at the box office. So I think that this is the kind of movie that people, general audiences, avoid. I wouldn't say that it flew by for three hours. <laughs> Not that I don't love three hour movies. So for because, you, yeah. for me, because there's there have been a few this year. I mean, Avatar recently that was three hours. And that, that felt, felt like that <laughs> felt like an hour and a half. That that cruise. I thought I thought Avatar three uh, was a slog at some point. Avatar two. Sorry, third one hasn't come out. <laughs> Anthony's Anthony's a slog all over the place oh, today. Man. So I wouldn't say that this flew by, but it didn't feel like a three hour movie. And I don't think at any point I was like, all right, like can we wrap this up? Can we wait for this end to end? But in terms of being a three-hour-long film, this isn't super appealing to everybody because clearly mixed reviews, 7.3 in IMDb, 70% Rotten Tomatoes score critic, and then 73% audience score. So pretty solid scores, 62% critic score. But the box office for Bo is Afraid is doing very poorly. It's at less than 1,000 theaters right now. It's like 950 theaters. It's only grossed $3.5 million. Globally, on a budget of $35 million, I would be shocked if this film ended up hitting 10 million dollars i mean yeah it's almost it, at just under a thousand theaters that's a pretty wide release so i think yeah. the word of mouth on this film is its biggest problem i don't think people are enticed to go see it because maybe their friends have seen it and they love you know they might love midsummer and hereditary which are very successful films in terms of the return on investment hereditary was their most successful film at a24 before everything everywhere all at once took it over and then midsummer made 45 50 million dollars at the global box office plus that has a ton of rentals vod so it's actually got more of watches online than hereditary does so it's just yeah. two really well-known films in the horror genre for cult horror fans for ari Aster fans and I think that the diehards went to go see this movie, but I think a lot of people maybe were expecting the next like horror f film from him, the next in his trilogy of horror films, something scary, because what I love about the first two films, and also what I love about how different this is, you know, Hereditary is basically, you could say, mid I mean, uh, Rosemary's Baby contemporary. Sure. Mid I mean, Midsummer is the Wicker Man contemporary, mm -hmm. so heavy homages, heavy influences with many... Uh, points of uniqueness in original storytelling however with Bo is afraid what the fuck is this movie <laughs> it's like a mixture of like Truman Show Synecdoche New York oh yeah and some other just surrealist Lynchian. yeah like surrealist films but this one's still 
when it, when you're relating it to other movies, it's still in its own world, its own little bubble, which is why I think it's so fascinating and interesting. And I love the decision that Ari made with this film is to make something that he just wanted to do just because it's something that he wanted to tell a story about, the story he's been working on for a while, and how different and unique it is. That's what I loved about it. But I think that it's not highly appealing for a lot of audience goers. And the word of mouth is really destroying this box office. I'm glad you brought up Synecdoche, New York, Charlie Kaufman's film, because I also, this film made me think of that as well. Uh, obviously very different stories, but there is a surrealist quality to Synecdoche, um, and it also shows, I would say, a, a similar kind of archetype of a character, Hoffman's character, to Phoenix's character in this. You could say that you could draw a lot of parallels between them. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. However... I, I think that this definitely has Kafka-esque qualities, Lynchian qualities. And the thing is, this is not a this is not a normal kind of movie. This is not a normal plot. This when you when you watch a movie like this, it's not like this is all like a plot. It's not like this is all really happening. What Ari Aster made a film about was a bunch of ideas and a bunch of themes, and he's translating these themes with images and with sequences. It's not so much like he's actually doing everything that happens in this movie. It's not like all of it is reality or it's all in his head. Neither of those things are the case, I would say. I would say that what Ari's doing is he's using film and using his narrative writing to showcase themes on the screen. Not just a, not just a plot, not just a story, but, all, but an idea. Like a bunch of ideas, a bunch of sequences that relate to a certain thing that he wants to talk about. And so you can't look at this film like you look at a general a general kind of film with a normal plot structure, a normal protagonist, antagonist, obstacles, conflicts. It's not that kind of movie. In a way, it's like you can compare it to a surrealist painting to, uh, or an abstract painting compared to you know a, a photorealistic painting or what have you, or a landscape painting. They're completely different things because there are different ways to make a movie. There's, there, there are different ways to make a painting. And so Ari Aster, what I like is that he's really stretching his narrative chops He's trying something really new, really out there, and I really enjoyed this film. I found it really enthralling, and I found it just, like, really insightful. I saw a lot of things that he's trying to say in terms of deconstructing society, our culture, especially in terms of the media, especially in terms of Big Pharma, also the coddling of, of young minds. I think that Joaquin Phoenix's character, Bo, is... Uh, definitely a product of those three things combined into absolute manic insanity times 10. And he's just illustrating these ideas he has in a film. I really enjoyed it as well. I have it my number two on the year right now, but I want to see it again. I have air above it. That's the thing. It's hard to, it, we're, I, I don't, I mean, I want to ana analyze it as best I can, but we've only seen it once. Yeah, so, so that's yeah. the thing, especially a film like this. Air, you can analyze after seeing it once, no problem. Yeah. But Bo is afraid. It's, it's very like, literal. what the fuck yeah. is going on in this movie? And I enjoyed the, the hell out of this movie. I thought the first hour or so was hysterical and got you just ready for this trip that you'd never seen before. And obviously, Joaquin Phoenix is phenomenal in this role. This movie does not work without a performance like this. Total commitment to a character that no one would want to play, I feel like. Did you see his interview with Aster? 
No, which one? So uh, well, they've, our, they've done a lot. They did. <laughs> they just did one where it, I think it was a twenty four a twenty four podcast, and Ari Aster told the story about the first day on set, and the first shot they did was a sh- one of that scene of Joaquin of of Bo sitting on his couch looking sad after his phone call with his mother, right? And Ari Aster said it was the first shot we did, and. Uh, he and Joaquin performed, and he actually did something different from what Ari instructed him to do. But he was like, "Oh my God, it works better!" And he goes out to him like, "He's like, oh, it was amazing. Like you are, Bo. I feel like I, I, that worked better than what I had planned." And then Joaquin was like, he stopped everything. He's like, "Can I talk to you by myself for a second? And so we took him aside. He's like, "Are you just like some young guy who's just happy to have Commodus in his movie? And like, <laughs> no matter what I do, you get to flip out about." <laughs> 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 and I love that as a way of like Joaquin Phoenix is no bullshit. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because he's opening himself up. He's a kind of performer. The reason why he's one of the best in the world is because he just opens himself entirely up to his performance, to the world that the filmmaker creates, and to the character. And that's what makes him so great, especially in this role, which is something you've never seen him do before. Yeah. So the first act was crazy, so fast paced with just intense laughter and unique laughter. <laughs> these crazy jokes that like I feel like people think about all the time, but like they've never seen it done visually in cinema or TV before. And then the second act is where it got really surrealist, lots of different things going on in terms of the forest sequence as well as this kind of like dreamlike fairy tale home, the suburban home that he's staying in, if it's real or not, and then really get into the third act where it gets serious and heavy and also still hysterical and very trippy <laughs> when we're talking about the attic sequence. And I want to talk about all these main beats over. Uh, it's like four main bit. chunks. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's actually four when you chapters. look back on it, there aren't a ton of scenes actually, yeah. these really long sequences. Yeah. And I will say that this this film, it at one point, got me, like, a little drowsy. And I'm not saying that in a bad way. I don't think there's really anything wrong with that because, you know, you watch a three-hour movie, three-and-a-half-hour movie, you expect at some point, you know, you're going to get a little, t- not tuned out, but you're just going to get, like, Oh, you're a little sleepy here, guy. <laughs> you're comfy. Yeah, you're comfy in big, your big seats. Those was, those IMAX seats at Burbank are it nice. Was, it was specifically yeah. the surrealist animated sequence when he's inside this play, you could say, and he's living the life that he wished he could have in the perfect world, the perfect bow if he ever escaped his mother's control. Like, this is what he imagined his life would be, is what you could say that entire sequence is. Cool animation. I loved it. And the stage. I love that you say it's the perfect bow because it's like he has kids. He has kids and he has a family, even though he's never had sex. So (laughs) it is exactly that. And (laughs) and yeah, and the sound design was really intense in the sequence. And there was a point where it was like, and I was just like feeling like I was getting lulled to sleep. And then I got punched in the face when the dialogue heavy sequences started started back up again. And I woke, not like I fell asleep, but like I came to real quickly and I was just energized for the third act of the film. So I'm not saying that's a bad thing if I got a little like kind of drowsy. I didn't say, I wouldn't say I got bored. It It was just like putting me in a trance, I think is the best way to put it. And the thing is, even if a movie is, has slow points and you find it a little boring at some sequence it doesn't matter because for weeks i've been thinking about this movie ever since yes, i saw it yeah. i'm still thinking about it every goddamn day i've seen four movies since then i saw two french films the other night <laughs> i saw another two great movie. ones yeah, and, yeah. And, and like i'm still thinking of Bo is afraid like i can't get this freaking movie out of my mind and that's what really makes i think films stand the test of time and fight audiences over time i think this film will find its audience eventually once more people watch it. That's what happened with Midsummer. It didn't do that well performance-wise, especially domestically. It, I mean, $45 million. Did it make yeah, $45 million? Yeah. Are you sure about um, that? It might be a little more than 45 right. Well, I thought it I thought it did $7 million. No, I don't know. No, no, no. Hold on. I just got to double-check. Go ahead and uh, double-check. Midsummer uh, was a, a profitable film. 
I'm not just. I'm not questioning you. I'm just like I thought. I, re- I thought I read that budget wasn't very high, but box office at least like 40, 45 million. Uh-huh. Pretty damn sure. Yeah, you're right. 40, 47 million. Forty seven mil. Impressive. So this will be this will be his big hit. This will be his big um dud. I mean, it's inevitable. You, you nobody has a perfect record except for James Cameron. <laughs> no, no, even James Cameron. I mean, I made a deal with, with the abyss. Uh, Chris Nolan had a perfect record until Tenet, but that's different because the entire yes. planet shut down. True, and still that's, made three hundred sixty million dollars. So, but the, without a doubt, this is I think his most interesting film. Do you want? I was thinking we could just section it off from the main chapters and just discuss them a bit here by there, like a little bit here by there, here, here and there. A little bit one by one. Yeah. Chronological order of the story. And then I have some pretty big theories about what I think is going on in my theories. Sounds good, bro. So just a quick synopsis. Sure, sure, sure. Just to set it up loosely. You know, the film follows Bo, played by Joaquin Phoenix, as he attempts to visit his mother, but he gets repeatedly frustrated by a series of deeply disturbing obstacles that may be real or maybe entirely of his own making. That's basically like a the best synopsis you could do with two sentences, I would say, for this film. Solid. And I also want to point out that if you didn't like this movie, it doesn't mean you didn't get it. I think there's a big debate online with films like this, like, oh, you just don't like it, so you don't really you didn't get it. That's why you don't like it. I don't think that applies at all in this film. If you didn't like it, that doesn't mean you didn't get it. I don't think anybody fully gets the David Lynch movie. I don't think so. Not I don't even think he does. David Lynch gets a yeah, not David even he Lynch does. Movie. So it's so it's okay if you don't understand something. Because it might not, even if someone says they understand it, they could be completely off from what the filmmaker was trying to do. It's true. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> That's the thing. But so, but yeah, let's get into the film. And I, I love the opening of this movie. Yeah, the first chapter with specifically the birth sequence yeah. of Bo being born. I've never seen anything like this before in a cinema. And at first, it was like pitch. It was black in this. It was black screen pretty much. And then we heard these really loud noises. And then we finally realized that we are a baby getting born, like POV. <laughs> like, what is that like? The most terrifying thing on the planet, probably, yeah. for, for being the sound like design, that. the blurry vision. So I yeah. thought that was so fascinating. And we immediately are introduced to his mother's voice, and they have to slap the baby awake. I think baby falls on its head. And he's not crying. And yeah, they have to slap him awake because he was born. I think he was born without a, a heartbeat. Well, I think he hit his head and yeah, maybe, maybe he was unconscious. Yeah, maybe. Oh, yeah, possibly. Because he, yeah. he wasn't breathing. But we're, That's what it we're shown. Immediately, that Bo's different, but yeah, and I th- also a kid it is uh, probably an early a precursor for his mother being so controlling over him. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So I thought that was really fascinating opening of the film, just to see a birth like POV. I loved it. I yeah, loved it's it. It's not the first time that's happened, but like I think this is like so realistic and mm-hmm. freaking awesome. And the the whole first chapter is basically Bo at his house at his horrible apartment in the downtown city neighborhood, an unnamed a city that's a fictional. It's called Carino. C-A-R-R-I-N-O, so it's not a real place, um, but it's basically the downtown area, and it's dangerous, it's full of chaos, crazy people all over the place, crude billboards and graffiti everywhere, the place is trashed, the apartment doesn't work, there's a killer spider on the loose, <laughs> there's all <laughs> sorts of calamities, and and the whole, I, I love the first chapter because it set up, the, it set the stage for Bowen. Ari Aster is basically kind of putting us into the mind of uh, basically you could say a paranoid schizophrenic in a way. Um, if Maybe he's not diagnosed as that, but you could say he could possibly be that. Whereas uh, what could be the most simple of things like crossing the street to go to the store is life or death for him. And Ari is re- representing that feeling uh, and that fear with this opening sequence and when I watch this movie, I'm I'm not thinking that the the city is overrun with 
chaos. I'm thinking like Bo sees the city as overrun as chaos, and it's his it's his mind that is perceiving these things that could be very normal, or even just like not even dangerous, but just like grisly. But not but he's perceiving them as uh, as life threatening everywhere he goes. Like these minute little surreal details that are everywhere, whether it's in his bedroom, the doors, anything, walking across the street, like you said, mm-hmm. it's it's all just elevated to this incredible level where it's like almost cartoonish in a lot of ways oh yeah and this whole world that he's living in it's it's basically it feels like in his perspective everyone's watching him everyone's focused on him and obviously we'll find out that this is part of his paranoia and his anxiety that his mother he feels is constantly watching him and and keeping tabs on him and that gets stronger and more prevalent later on when we're like at the at the suburban house later on in the film. But I love this opening as well because this is really funny. Tons of energy to open the film up. I love these hilarious notes like that get pushed under the door and they're super funny and the music sequence and the the uh, scene with his therapist is also very revealing and funny at the same time. We got I got a cool new drug. <laughs> yeah, we get well, we get great characterization real quickly because as soon as he walks in his therapist's office, he puts his phone face up, which is not what you want to do if you were like in a therapy session. You want that face down. You want don't want any attention or distractions. His mother calls him immediately, meaning you can assume that she probably calls him like every 10 minutes or something like that. And he lets it ring out. And their discussion is basically about his mother. And I love how the therapist who ties in, in the, into the finale of the film, the third act of the film, writes, da- writes down guilt or guilty or he says guilt, feels guilt, basically, when he's asking him about it. So eh, I don't know. He's like, guilt. Guilty. But then, like, in the third act, you realize, like, he's in on it. He's, like, he's guilty of his sins towards his mother. So yeah. tying, like, a character in like that, I think, is so brilliant by Ari Aster. I also think it's uh, a physical representation of what... Arya actually says a couple of things about the media and the mass hysteria the media likes to portray of... Uh, especially living in metropolitan cities or in downtown areas and how unsafe everything is and how horrible the world is and the news and media are just selling you fear, 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 fear. And then Big Pharma is selling you pills to make you feel better and to deal with it. And if you're sad, take this. If if you're scared, take this. If you have anxiety, take this. And so I think that Ari combined both those things and gave us like a physical representation of all the hysteria and all of the negativity and all of the fear mongering that we get online that we get from the media and then also combining that with big farmer really taking a hold of people who are vulnerable to profit off of them and to basically once they get hooked on big farmer they're under the control of big farmer for the rest of their lives a lot of the way that a lot in a lot of the ways that Bo is under the control of his mother who works for big pharma so i think that Ari is saying a lot about those two huge parts of our society that many people like to gloss over. I wouldn't say she works for Big Pharma. She, she is, is Big, Big Pharma. Pharma. Yeah. No, Wasserman. She yeah. is like the CEO of Big of a Big Pharma brand. Mm-hmm. And obviously, Bo misses his his flight to see his mother, to visit his mother, which he always misses because he lost his keys. There's always something. There's yeah. always something. And that phone call with his mother is so devastating because he just seems so pathetic that he can't even get on a flight to go see his mom and you can hear the massive disappointment in his mother's voice over the situation. And it's like 10 minutes, this, this scene and you just feel it. And then the crazy sequence where he takes his pill without water and then he's like, Oh no, you take (laughs) absolutely take it with water. He goes across the street to get a bottle trying to pay. And then those criminals, whether they're in his mind or not, just destroy his apartment. He sleeps outside. The sawdust coming on his head. Everything that happens to this guy is just, 
sign like really showcases how much of a loser he really is <laughs> out Passivity. to the rest of the world. Yeah. You know, I mean it's not his fault, but like this is who he is. This is who Ariasa creates that I want to put you in the shoes of the biggest loser you've ever met. And the biggest he's the most passive character I've ever seen. He's extremely passive because if you look at like the reason why he had to go back in the house was because he didn't take the floss the day before. He was like nervous about should I take it, should I not take it? He decides not to. He's passive about the notes that get thrown under his under his door over and over again. He just ignores them. So I think that whenever there's a conflict, Bo curls up into a ball into the fetal position and, and avoids it as best he can. Uh, when there's a conflict about he doesn't want to see his mom, so he just does his best to act like it's not his fault. And then we actually get that at the end when his mother's berating him, saying that she's 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 always done everything for him, always given her every ounce of time and energy and love she's ever had, and it's never enough for Bo. He just keeps taking it all and acting like it's not good enough. And one of the big catalysts of this of this film is in a hilarious sequence where he's in his tub after his apartment's been destroyed. <laughs> he's in the tub for like two minutes, and then he looks at the ceiling, and that homeless man is just. On the ceiling of his above his bathtub, and they're looking at each other. He's sweating on him. It was hysterical. It lasted like a minute. Then he falls. Then he leaves, yeah. and that's when he's stabbed by the deranged man, the hit by a car, and then he wakes up in a, a girl's bedroom in the suburban home of the family who hit them with their truck. Yeah, Roger and Grace. And uh, I, I love this sequence because it's so odd and weird, but also you can kind of look at it sort of as like his vision of like the perfect suburban home like the american dream this 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 dad is such an american dad he's like hey bud how you doing pal i'm a doctor i'm a surgeon Nathan lane's great in this <laughs> everyone's great in this yeah, film yeah. and he's so funny this home is just so weird and odd and we have like he's being surveilled he can he plays back a video of him that, of everything he's about to do in the future or he's done in the past and it, there's a lot going on with this family, specifically with the younger daughter, the medication. We see big farmers ploy here. Everyone's taking pills before they eat dinner. Obviously, Bo takes pills and medication as well. But it's, it's just an odd sequence. And obviously, we have a crazy suicide with the daughter. Just drinking the pain. Drinking the blue paint. Oh, my God. Is this a reference to the, the son that the family is grieving over who they lost in the war, who's a veteran? Obviously, Because when she goes, he goes in that room, she's got blue paint. And pink mm -hmm. paint, she drinks the blue paint. Is she drinking, is that a representation of the son's death yeah, that the definitely. family's going yeah. through? So she's just, she's swallowed by, their family's swallowed by the grief of his loss. Wow, what a great, what a great <laughs> connection, man. That's good. So there's, there's so much going on, but I, I love the family and the performances were incredible. So actually I can get into one of my crazy theories about this film. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. I think that this entire suburban household is actually a mental institution that Bo is stuck in he's put there after he's picked he's picked up after running around the streets naked and gets hit by a car oh that's interesting and yeah. so I, I think roger is a re representation of a doctor and then Na grace could be a representation of a nurse who worked there 
And then Tony, the daughter, is actually a patient that he's forced to share a room with, and she's upset that her room's being shared with someone else, and that she. So that works into that favor as well for that character. So same with the other, the war veteran. Exactly, the war veteran is another person in the mental institution, and so I think that uh, he's actually stuck there because when you become a danger to society, you're you cannot leave a, a mental health institution. It's like there are cases where you can volunteer yourself to be put in, but then there are cases where you're involuntarily put into for the safety of yourself and the well-being of others. So I think that he's actually uh, stuck in a mental institution, uh, and these are actual doctors that are taking care of him, and the uh, and the, the daughter, Tony, and Peeves are actually other patients there. I love that. And then you could kick it off that saying his coping mechanism for being in a mental facility is to envision that it's the perfect family home in suburbia. Yeah, exactly. It's a great point. That's really cool. Yeah. And he can't... Plus, all, that's that... Uh, all the pills they're always taking. He can't leave. He can't until leave until he's taken by the daughter yeah. in the car. And um, he he uh, they give him his own pajamas, so comfortable pajamas. It's something like it could be something that you would wear in a in a mental institution. And so I think that this is his way of visually coping with where he really is in the real world, which is a mental institution where he was in his own apartment, and then. When all the shit went down and he ran outside naked and he might have attacked some people and then he got hit by a car, he was deemed a hazard to himself and others. And then so he's locked up in a mental institution. And you could argue that this allows Mona Washerman's mother to surveil him with video cameras and security <laughs> footage. That's a really cool theory. Thanks, I love man. that, man. Thanks, man. Yeah, I, I agree. I'm, I, I'm only going off of one watch of the movie. I, so I'm, I'm doing I'm, the best I'm with I can. you on that. I think we just combined two the great the great <laughs> metaphor. A super metaphor. He's in a mental facility <laughs> and he's using the perfect dream of suburbia as a coping mechanism. Yeah, exactly. Hey, I like that, man. I think we figured it out. Thanks, possibly. Man. Good, I don't know about that. It's, good, just, it's just a theory. Good stuff. But also what I love about the sequence is it shows the mass overdiagnosis of illnesses that we're seeing, especially in America. Affirming where, care, you know what yeah, I mean? Not just, just, yeah. not just affirming care, yeah. but but Overdiagnosis of illnesses that require medication, or that big pharma says you require medication. Of course, plenty of people they need medication, they have ailments, or they have some sort of mental health issue going on. But the overdiagnosis of it is clearly a problem, and big pharma is an overarching theme throughout this entire film. And Mona Wasserman represents big pharma. Yeah, and also the way that Roger speaks to Bo when Bo keeps saying, "I have to go, I have to leave, I have to go somewhere." What would a nurse or a doctor say to a patient who's begging to leave? Tomorrow, oh, we'll go tomorrow. Tomorrow, yeah. Yep. Exactly. Pretty good, all right, right? All right, I like that. Sounds but right. also, then then how come Amy Ryan's character said, gives him the napkin that says, don't incriminate yourself, because she knows that Mona Washerman's watching that she, that this hospital is under the control of Big Pharma? It's that, but, it's that, but also it's just intense paranoia and delusion. You know, he's, it's just like uh, schizophrenic. Schizophrenics often use paranoia as a construct of what they interpret Usually auditory, schizophrenics are mostly auditory. It's, beautiful mind isn't really accurate. People aren't really seeing intense hallucinations like that, but oftentimes they'll hear voices. And oftentimes the fear and paranoia of being watched and listened to is the main thing that they will that will affect them. And so I think that's just a case of that. All right, let's get into the next section of the film where he escapes this suburban home, this mental facility covered in blue paint. Yeah, so I say Tony really did kill herself in the mental institution, and then it gave him an opportunity to escape. And, and then flee. he just flees into the wilderness where he discovers this traveling theater party and has this intense surrealist experience where he's part of the play, he becomes the play. And like I said earlier, I think this is where he's envisioning a life that he would have had 
without his mother's control over him because finally he's left the clutches of his mother, you could say, where he's disappeared into the woods. He's being chased after, obviously, but now maybe for the first time in his entire life, he's been free, and he's kind of envisioning what a perfect life for him would look like without his mother. And the whole the whole idea of the play, because first the play starts, and then about a couple minutes into the play, he begin, he puts himself into the play, and then he carries out this tale of himself in a way and like you said it's like the perfect per- version of Bo I wouldn't say it's the perfect version of Bo but it's the Bo he always wanted to be I never said the perfect version of Bo or you said I mean I'm sorry sorry perfect life okay the perfect life but it's it's more <laughs> this guy it's more of like everything that Bo wants because Bo wants to go on adventures deep down he wants to explore the world he wants to be an active person but his entire life he's just been this passive curled up ball of fear and terrified of leaving his home and so in this fantastical version of himself, in this story that he's basically getting to write on his own, the story he would write of himself is someone who explores, someone who goes on adventures, someone who has family, someone who has people who love him. Someone my son! My, my beautiful son! He is someone, people who depend on him. He's not a dependent anymore. People depend on him. He has a family. These are things that he's always wanted for himself. And the only way that he can ever experience them, he is realizing, is by inventing them. And so... Putting himself into that story and playing that out is his way of dealing with that desire he constantly has. Yeah, and I love how we see different ages of Bo at this point because there's the old Bo who runs the theater, and then the next major section of the film after the the uh, veteran comes in and, and starts Peeves. killing people, Peeves, Peeves starts coming in to kill people, is we have that flashback to his childhood on the cruise ship with his mother where he meets Elaine. And this is a great sequence where we see the control that his mother's had on him up into his entire life, but he's not completely the man he is right now where he's just full of paranoia and fear. He's at a point where he's, it's building. He still yeah. has a little bit of control over his personality, but you can tell you can tell that his mother still is starting to get complete control over him, but he, st- he slightly rebels you know, when he meets Elaine. And this is another person that, I, that might love me and tells me that she loves me and wants me to wait for her. Obviously, his mother doesn't like it, and it's odd that his mother and him sleep in the same bed, and they kind of have these intimate conversations that she forces upon him. And he never sees Elaine again until later in the film at his mother's supposed funeral. Because earlier on, of course, we forgot to mention that hilarious phone call with Bill Hader's cameo (laughs) where the UPS UPS guy guy found his mother beheaded, decapitated by a chandelier. So his whole... Journey now is at the same time him having to get home in time for the funeral. And then his so his mother instilled this insane fear that if he ever orgasms inside of a woman, he will die on the spot. She says that's just orgasm. Orgasm, yeah, just, just orgasm in yeah. general. And so because his mother tells him the story of his father when he, the first time they had sex was after was the night they were married, and then uh, her Bo's father orgasmed inside of her, and then he died on the spot from of a heart failure. And so she instills this fear inside of Bo all of his life, life since he was a child. She says it's generational. Yeah, generational. All the fathers of his family. Yeah. And I think it's she's doing this as a way of preventing him from ever getting close to another woman because she does not want him to get close to any woman except for her. And so she wants to remain the most important female in his life. So then in that way, he's preventing Bo from ever having a relationship and then you get a hint of that when he's a kid when little when uh, teenage elaine is talking to him about kissing and he's like well my dad had a heart condition that's the first hint we get at it 
where he's already been told at that point that if he ever orgasms, he will die. And so that leads into, obviously, the finale, the, the final act with that ridiculous, crazy sex scene. Yeah, it's, a, it's an insane concept. And obviously, I think you're absolutely correct that she does this to prevent him from getting close to anybody besides her. Yeah. So that only she runs his entire life. He never looks to anybody else for affection. He's never ejaculated or orgasmed or come before. Hence the giant balls. Exactly. <laughs> Did you see the giant balls yeah, in the yeah, tub? Yeah, when yeah, he crawled the into the tub. Just was, a quick shot. Yeah, I was like, I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> in my head, it's like, dude, were those his balls? And then the doctor says, man, yeah. you got some, you got a pair yeah. on you. He says something like that. Yeah. <laughs> it's so There's funny. two little quick shots of oh his giant God, testicles. Oh my God, so ridiculous. Because he's so backed up. <laughs> but also it's a, it's a representation of uh, everything building up inside of him as a person and a human being, you know what I mean? Just waiting to explode. Yeah, and no you feel, pun intended. <laughs> you feel bad because Elaine says, I love you, wait for me. And he does wait for her until he shows up at his mother's She's house. Like, I waited for you. Waited for you. <laughs> In the third act, it's empty. He missed the funeral. Um, and he's there by himself at night. night. Then Elaine shows up. He sees the decapitated body of his mother, but he realizes non-verbally that it's not his mom. He reveals later on that he knew it wasn't her. He knew that she was still alive. And because Elaine, the hands yeah, didn't match. Yeah. Because Elaine shows up and they rekindle their romance and they have sex. And he's so afraid to orgasm, he thinks he's going to die. He's so funny in this While scene. she's on top of him. Oh my God. And then he's fine. And then he's like, I can't believe my whole he's life. He's like, I thought I was going to I, I, I seriously thought, thought I was going to die. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And then what happens? She comes on top of him and she freaking dies. She is frozen in death. That's insane. Yeah, it's crazy. It makes you think like- Her fucking face. Why did that happen? Did his mother do that to her? Did she give him something to him? Or was this well, all in his I'll, mind? I'll tell you my theory. Yeah. I don't think it really- So the thing is like, I don't think that really happened. But I would say it's- He's- It's a representation of his fear that if he- He's- he If he- It's a fear of him not being able to satisfy the person he loves. And so I think that he's afraid that if he can't satisfy Elaine, it'll kill their, the love that they have. It's possible that in his in reality, he killed her. Yeah. She was oh, yeah, there. totally. That's yeah. absolutely possible, too. Yeah. And that he just, in his in his mental illness state, envisioned her getting that the way. gene that he had, that yeah. she died on top of him. But then his mother shows up, and she's so betrayed by <laughs> Bo because he gave his affection to somebody else, had sex in her bed. She's like, I saw the whole thing. You <laughs> orgasmed in my bed. Like, this, this is so odd. And it's this odd connection that anything sexual in Bo's life is related to his mother. It makes him think about his mother, which is so messed up. <laughs> it's just so odd. And then they have this incredible 35-minute third act, and... A lot of things are revealed to Bo, and I think my favorite is clearly, for sure, the attic sequence where she has him go up into this attic, this this thing he's been having visions of, and he goes up there and he sees this incredibly old man with his childhood clothing, which is clearly a representation of Bo being trapped under his mother's control inside this attic for his entire life, not being able to grow up, and then also the giant penis and testicle monster, <laughs> which you could say is a representation of his manhood, of his mat maturity that he could pot potentially have, has also been trapped in, under the control of his mother. And then it's attacked by Peeves, the <laughs> destruction of his manhood. <laughs> but then it fights back. Um, so... And it kill yeah, the, the arm through the head. Yeah. And also, there's another great reveal where... We realize and find out that everything about Bo's life, not just what he 
lives daily, but his medication, the food he eats, everything is under the control of his mother, Mona Wasserman. She runs and is the CEO of the food brand of the frozen meals he eats. She's in charge of the medication. We see him as a child and teenager on all these magazine covers and articles about medication. So you can tell he's also probably been a guinea pig for her, for her, his, her entire corporation of developing medications and using them to control him and other people. And also, I think this is the uh, the point where he's doubling down on his this dissection of the coddling of uh, America, where everything, every ad or product is about safety. Even like the men's straight razor, even the men's razor is about like the safest razor. And so I think that Ari Aster is having a conversation about the coddling of minds and how it produces weak people who can't stand up for themselves and who can't really do anything for themselves and uh, prevents them from being active human beings if they're coddled too much, if they're spoiled, if they're babied. And so I think that this is a great sequence representing, I think, a, I think a problem in our society and many societies as well of um, preventing young people from growing up in their own right to become the potent, to, to fully realize the potential they have as human beings by being spoiled, by being coddled, by always telling, by always having the, the helicopter parent around. And so I think this is an example of that. And always being medicated for being every medicated, kind of yes. potential ailment, yeah. whether they exist or not. Exactly. Because you know there are people out there that are get, get, taking medication that they probably don't really need. And being told that the world is a dangerous place at every turn and corner as well. So, And then um, after, this is a great dialogue scene. We can get into this film a lot more, but I need to watch it again, you know. So there's only so much we can dissect, but it's terrific acting from both actors. And it's a really great 20 minutes just back and forth. Um, and... I really was just blown away by both performances. And then it culminates in Bo strangling his mother to death. And then, oh, but also the psychiatrist showed up and he's like laughing and smiling. Yeah. Patty Lupone yeah. was terrific she's, in this third she's act phenomenal. This movie. She should get an Oscar nomination for sure. And then after killing his mother, Bo, uh, with despair and regret across his face, he walks out onto the lake, gets into a canoe. And paddles across the water tops. No, he's got a motor. A motor, sorry, motor, motor boat. Motor boat. And then he, he he rides across the water for we look what looks like a few miles, and he enters this big cavernous rock and goes through this cavernous tunnel on the boat, which leads him to this big opening. Not sure where he is. It's all dark, and then all of a sudden, lights turn on, and he's the center of a giant arena where he is the show, and there are thousands of people in the audience and this is basically a moment of judgment for him who's judging him his mother and his mother's lawyer and then he has like some cheap like 1-800 lawyer defending his case and so Bo is being judged for the sins against his mother in a way and so to I'll get into one of my theories where I think that um I think that Bo dies one of my theories is that Bo drowns himself in the boat so he takes the boat onto the water. After he kills his mother, takes his boat, takes the boat out, and then drowns himself. And now he he's being judged by not by God, but by his mother. So do you know what uh, the what the name Mona means in Persian? I'm guessing God. God, because his mother is God. So Bo's Bo's mother Bo is being judged not for the sins against a God, but the, for the sins against his mother. The sins against his creator. His creator basically is his mother. You know what I mean? So she is God to him. She's the dragon. She's the the dragon that the hero has to fight at the end of a story. However, in this case, Bo is not a hero. He loses his battle and he is 
I would say, brought down into the depths of, you could say, hell in a way. He does not pass the judgment and he fails. And I think that this ending is really brilliant. I really enjoyed the last like 10 minutes of this movie in this arena setting. It's like a fucked up pearly gates yeah. where you think you're going to be judged fairly on the actions of your entire life. But instead, you're only judged on the actions towards <laughs> one person, which is your mother, who in your life has been God. And it's a trip. And I love how Ari, after the boat upside and uh, flipped upside down and Bo drowned, obviously, and the arena emptied out and it was over. He kept the shot for like 10, 15 minutes while credits rolled. I was mouth agape for the entire sequence. I couldn't move. Some people clearly didn't like this movie and they got up as soon as it was, as soon oh, yeah. it was over. As, as it was over I couldn't move my body. I was just shocked by this entire film and this entire experience. And I think it was an, an incredible film and so goddamn original and unique. And I, I really enjoyed it, and I hope that people give it another chance and maybe try to watch it again. And I hope it gets a little more box office because we need movies like this to do well, and yeah. clearly it did not. I have another big theory if you want to hear it. Let's hear your big theory, it's bro. It's not too long. It's not too long. Yeah. So I think that – so my theory is that Bo is dead the entire time. And that he is going through the nine stages of purgatory as written by Dante and Dante's Inferno. And so I have them all written down. Just a really quick synopsis. So the first stage of purgatory is stubbornness. So a real quick quote. Full of the souls who delayed their Christian life because of their stubbornness to obey God's laws. So Bo is delaying his trip to see Mona because of criminals stealing his things. Also the crazy people outside are those who don't obey God's laws. Second stage is repentance. Bo learns that his mother is dead, so he's dealing with the with the loss of a loved one, which is what happens to the people in that stage of purgatory. Third stage is pride. Pride is represented by Roger and Grace, who are overly proud of their son's sacrifice and death, so proud that it destroys their relationship with their daughter. And also, they because of their pride, they let this seriously dangerous, crazed man live in their home because of the pride they have for their son. Fourth stage is envy. Tony is envious of both her brother's attention from her parents, even though he's dead, and also of Bo taking her place in her room and using all of her things. Fifth stage is wrath. Uh, Peeves is a representation of wrath. He's constantly attacking, constantly trying to kill. The wrathful are forever preoccupied with running around without rest, since they never had zeal in their previous life. Sixth stage is sloth. Bo on the cruise ship, unwilling to stand up for himself. And just basically all of his <laughs> all of his moments. Seventh stage is avarice. Mona's thrust for wealth. Mona's thirst for wealth and power at the expense of her son is finally revealed at the third act of the film. In Purgatory, as Dante wrote, the souls are being punished for desiring material goods with extravagant greed or ambition. The eighth stage is gluttony. Mona reveals that all Bo ever did was take and take and take from her. No matter how much she gave, it was never enough for him. And then the last stage, ninth stage, is lust. Bo and Elaine lust for each other, and Elaine is killed because of it. Love it. And then the boat ride is his journey to the afterlife. His soul. His journey to the afterlife, and then the final judgment is the judgment for will he go to heaven or will he go to hell. Very cool. Thanks. I think that's, I think that's pretty great. I hope it sounds cool. I think it, it fits pretty well. Thanks. Appreciate it. Well, this movie was a trip. It was. And... There's a reason why Martin Scorsese called Ari Aster one of the most unique and important voices in global cinema right now. And I think that this movie was tremendous. I love how unique it was from his first two, an original, 
and I loved it. I can't wait to watch it again. Yeah. Probably it'll be out theaters soon, so we'll probably just wait till it comes out like on, on streaming because we've got a bunch of movies to see Lots in the next couple weeks, yeah. and we're doing some traveling for some stuff. But I can't wait to check this out again and really get a great grasp of what the fuck is going on. Yeah, it's already my favorite film of the year so far. Yeah, it's between this and Air. Right now, I think Air is number one for me. Air is very entertaining. Yeah. It was, Air is number two for me. But Bo is a close second, and it could just like in a week, I could be like, you know what? I think Bo is, is mm-hmm. number one. Yeah, because after you know talking about talking it. about it, I'm still like this movie's incredible. But I mean, I need to see this a couple more times because like I kept getting asked like, how does it rank among Ari Aster's films? It's like I I can't rank his films after only seeing this once. It's like I need to see it a few times before I can really grasp it. You know, it's just so complicated, and mm-hmm. complex. Well, not super complicated, but it's just it's a mind fuck. Yeah. I think it's, it's compl- mind. I think it's complicated. <laughs> well, I mean, like when you talk about it on the surface, it's like. Writing it, I'm sure, was complicated. Yeah. But then, like, watching it and, like... Convincing trying. people to do it was yeah. complicated. Yeah. Well, I mean, he, he had two very successful films. That's true, yeah. A24, a lot of money. And yeah. helped build... He helped build A24's rep, for sure. Him and Greta, for sure, because Lady Bird made 73 mil. So those are two big hits for them. Yeah. I mean, early, not, I'm not obviously days. they had cred with... They've won Oscars, but yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, in yeah, terms yeah. of, like... Audiences like going to see respecting A24 the brands. People are like, oh, it's an A twenty four movie. I fucking love her edge. There, there are some early A twenty four movies there, like duds. They kind of want to, you know, mediocre. what I mean, they're pretty forgetful movies. You know, what I mean, they, 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 they've shot a lot of shots, and I'd say half of them have stuck in a way, but only like a quarter of them have really stuck. But this is definitely a, movie, a filmmaker who helped solidify the brand. I, I heard a great audio clip from A twenty four's podcast, and they had. Joaquin and Ariaster just like talk about the film on their podcast for an episode. It was just them two. And they both played each other, introducing the other person themselves. <laughs> and uh, Joaquin was pretending he was Ariaster. He's like, Hi, I'm Ariaster. I have to do this podcast because I'm contractually obligated by A24 to do it. And they finance all my movies and never give me enough time to film them. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Super funny. That's, I- the, that's the podcast I referenced earlier. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I got to check it out. I got to listen to it. Yeah. All right, let's wrap Bo is Afraid for now. I'm sure we'll revisit this in the future at some point. Oh, yeah. And I'm sure if you listen to this entire episode that you saw it, and hopefully it shed some new light on your experience and helped you figure some things out about the movie because there's still lots of mysteries to unpack and lots of symbols and things that we haven't even looked into or thought about. We'll do on a second viewing, but take care, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning into this review of Bo is Afraid. See you next time. Before we continue, the very best way to support Raiders of the Lost Podcast is to become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. We have five different tiers of membership and every single tier gets access to two bonus episodes every week. A bonus episode of the podcast as well as the weekly chat which is exclusively on Patreon only now. We have a $2, $5, $10, $25, and $100 tier membership Everyone comes with a bunch of awesome perks. That $10 tier gets you access to our Discord. It's an incredible film community that we've built and developed with our friends and fans. Have watch parties on there, talk with you all the time. $25 gets you your own custom episode. You pick a topic and we'll cover it for you. That $100 tier is the granddaddy chosen one tier. You also get a private watch party. And after a couple months, after three months on that tier, you get to come on the show for a fun guest segment. So thank you so much to our patrons around the world for supporting the show. This episode is sponsored by our friends at MoviePosters.com, the number one place to get your posters online today. Head on over to MoviePosters.com and use our promo code RAIDERS10 to get 10% off your order. 
today. Our set in-house is decked out with so many of these amazing posters, high-quality prints, the best you can get for your money. They have all sorts of sizes, framing, and even backlighting for your poster needs. So if you need to get a movie poster for either yourself or the movie fan in your life, head on over to MoviePosters.com and use our promo code RAIDERS10 to get 10% off your order today. This episode was executive produced by our Chosen One patrons, Cody Moen, Andrew Hagen, Becca Keen, Benjamin Cook, Calvin Murphy Griggs, Nicholas Martin, Darian Singleton, Tyler McFly, Andrew Hagen. Our Chosen One patrons are our biggest supporters. Thank you so much. Raiders of the Lost podcast is a Mirror Image production. Sound mixing done by Jacob Kosler. Opening music by Chase Jackson.